Chapter 10. More Harm Than Good. It's like waking up in your house with a room full of smoke, opening the window to let the smoke out, and then going back to bed. Unnamed medical expert. In the last chapter, we heard global public health advocates accuse Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci of hijacking WHO's public health agenda away from the projects that are proven to curb infectious diseases, clean water, hygiene, nutrition, and economic development, and diverting international aid to wedge open emerging markets for their multinational partners and to serve their personal vaccine fetish. This chapter will examine Gates's underlying assertion that his African and Asian vaccines are yielding a net public health benefit. Allergy to placebo testing. Most medicinal products cannot get licensed without first undergoing randomized placebo controlled trials that compare health outcomes, including all cause mortalities, in medicated versus unmedicated cohorts. Tellingly, In March 2017, I met with Dr. Fauci, Francis Collins, and a White House referee, and separately with Peter Marks from CBER at FDA, to complain that HHS was by then mandating 69 doses of 16 vaccines for America's children, none of which had ever been tested for safety against placebos prior to licensing. Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins denied that this was true and insisted that those vaccines were safety tested. They were unable, however, after several weeks, to provide us a citation for a single clinical trial using an inert placebo against a vaccine. In October 2017, Dell Bigtree and Aaron Seary, who both attended these meetings, Joined me in suing HHS under the Freedom of Information Act to produce the long promised safety studies. Ten months after the meeting with Fauci and Collins on the courthouse steps, HHS admitted that we were in fact correct. None of the mandated childhood vaccines had been tested for safety in pre licensing inert placebo tests. The best of Bill Gates's African vaccines are all on this list. But Bill Gates also uses a large retinue of much more dangerous and demonstrably ineffective vaccines in Africa, ones that Western countries have actually rejected because of dire safety signals. That means that nobody knows the risks of these products, and nobody can say with specificity or certainty that any of Bill Gates's flagship vaccines actually prevent more injuries and deaths than they cause. Furthermore, it means that all of Gates's African vaccines are experimental products. For Gates and his cronies, the continent is a mass human experiment, with no control groups and no functional data collection systems, for shoddily tested, high risk medical interventions. His unwillingness to actually measure or prove the effectiveness of his prescriptions in reducing mortality and improving health suggests that Gates appreciates that his vaccines are not the human health miracle he proclaims. Because Gates and Dr. Fauci suffer the same allergy to funding studies 
that examine the effectiveness of their vaccines in improving health and reducing mortality. Neither man has ever offered empirical evidence to support their pivotal claim that their vaccines have saved millions of lives. The meager published science examining this question indicates that virtually all of Gates's blockbuster African and Asian vaccines, polio, DTP, hepatitis B, malaria, meningitis, HPV, and Hib, cause far more injuries and deaths than they avert. This chapter will offer a rough cost-benefit analysis of each of Bill Gates's flagship African and Indian vaccines. Bill and Tony's African Safari In the colonial era, Africa provided model precincts for testing new vaccines. In the 1950s, white colonial overlords rolled out the red carpet for pharmaceutical companies to perform vaccine experiments on compliant test subjects numbering in the millions. Drug companies spend some 90% of their drug development costs on Phase three human trials. Every trial delay eats into the critical time period when the product enjoys patent protection. In the 1980s, pharma therefore moved most of its clinical trials to poor nations where human guinea pigs are cheap and even the most severe injuries will rarely delay the study. Government complicity and anemic corporate liability laws allow vaccine makers to write off injuries as collateral damage with little consequence or accountability. Today, pharma still regards Africa as the beau ideal to test immunizations and as a lucrative receptacle for dumping expired and defective stocks. Bill Gates has played a key role in legitimizing this arrangement while collaborating with captive or corrupt WHO officials to scam Western donor nations into footing the bill and guaranteeing rich profits for pharmaceutical companies in which, coincidentally, he holds hefty stock positions. Gates, the biggest funder of vaccines in the world, is heavily invested in lucrative partnerships with almost all the world's largest vaccine companies. Bill and Melinda Gates have continued the tradition of human experimentation in Africa with the WHO stepping neatly into the role of an enabling colonial vassal. Following the colonial era, most of Africa's new nationalist governments considered healthcare a national priority, and many of them developed model health programs for their populations. During the 1970s, International Monetary Fund, IMF, austerity policies bankrupted the best of these programs and left African nations almost entirely dependent on the WHO to finance national health ministries and vital HIV programs. Using its control of the flow of international assistance, WHO exerts discipline, rewards compliance, and punishes resistance to pharma's African ambitions. WHO uses its funding power to bully African governments that slack on vaccine uptake. Gates's pervasive control over WHO has made Africa his fiefdom. The continent's populations have become his guinea pigs. Vaccines for Bill Gates are a strategic philanthropy 
that feed his many vaccine-related businesses and give him dictatorial control over global health policies affecting millions of human lives. DTP Vaccine African Genocide A wave of gruesome brain injuries and deaths followed the introduction of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis DTP vaccines in the United States and Europe in the 1970s. As early as 1977, a study published by British physicians and researchers in The Lancet established that the risks of the whole-cell pertussis jab used in the DTP vaccine exceed the risks associated with wild pertussis. Six years later, a 1983 NIH-funded UCLA study found that Wyeth's DTP vaccine was killing or causing severe brain injury, including seizures and death, in one in every 300 vaccinated children. The resultant lawsuits caused the collapse of insurance markets for vaccines and threatened to bankrupt the industry. Wyeth, now Pfizer, claimed to be losing $20 in downstream liability for every dollar it earned on vaccine sales and induced Congress to pass the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act in 1986, shielding vaccine makers from liability. In 1985, the Institute of Medicine, IOM, recommended the abandonment of the whole-cell version of the pertussis vaccine to avert the high incidence of encephalopathy and deaths. In 1991, the United States, EU countries, and Japan switched to a far safer but less effective dead-cell attenuated vaccine, DTaP, and discontinued use of the DTP jab. While Western nations pulled the DTP, WHO gave pharma free reign and cash to dump its toxic inventories in Africa, Asia, and Central America, despite strong evidence of its deadly impacts. Its dangers aside, the old DTP is cheaper to manufacture and more lucrative for pharma, and so, after 2002, Gates and his surrogates, Gavi, WHO, and Global Fund, made DTP the flagship for their African vaccine program and continued giving this neurotoxic and often lethal vaccine to some 156 million African children annually. WHO's use of DTP as its bellwether vaccine to measure national compliance with WHO's vaccine schedule has made DTP today the most popular vaccine on earth. Health ministries across the world must demonstrate specific uptake goals with the DTP recommendations in order to qualify for vital WHO assistance for HIV and other support. Prior to 2017, neither HHS nor WHO performed the kind of study necessary to ascertain whether the DTP vaccine was actually yielding the beneficial health outcomes about which Gates frequently boasts. That year, the Danish government and the Scandinavian vaccine behemoths Staten's Serum Institute and Novo Nordisk commissioned prominent Scandinavian scientists Soren Mogensen and Peter Abi, both vocal champions of the African vaccine program, 
to lead an illustrious team of international researchers to examine all-cause mortalities after the DTP inoculations. That massive study put the lie to Gates's mantric incantation that his investment in the DTP vaccine has saved millions of lives. In June 2017, the team published a peer-reviewed study in eBiomedicine, a high-gravitas journal in Elsevier's publishing house Armada. The article parsed data from a so-called natural experiment in Guinea-Bissau, where half the children in certain age groups were vaccinated and the other half were not. The division was randomized. That 2017 study, Mogensen et al. 2017, shows that following their DTP immunization at three months, vaccinated girls had tenfold higher mortality than unvaccinated children. The girls were dying of a wide range of diseases, pneumonia, anemia, malaria, dysentery. And for two decades, no one noticed that the dying children were predominantly those who received the vaccine. The DTP vaccine, while protecting children against diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, had ruined their immune systems, making them vulnerable to a wide range of deadly non-target infections. Mogensen's team arrived at that conclusion, as had the 1977 Lancet study researchers exactly 40 years earlier. DTP vaccine may kill more children from other causes than it saves from diphtheria, tetanus, or pertussis. In other words, Gates's DTP vaccine, instead of saving 10 million lives as he claims, may have unnecessarily killed millions of African girls. At least seven other studies have confirmed DTP's association with high mortality in vaccinated girls compared to unvaccinated. The idealistic Americans who donated to Gates's African Vaccine Project, believing they were saving African babies, were actually funding a continent-wide female genocide. After completing the study and verifying its shocking results, Peter Abi, a virtual deity among African vaccine researchers, made an impassioned and remorseful plea to the WHO to reconsider the DTP vaccine. I guess most of you think that we know what our vaccines are doing, he said. We don't. Gates, WHO, and Gavi ignored Abi's appeal and redoubled their efforts to expand DTP vaccinations and to shore up support for the girl-killing jab. The Lancet published a commentary by Gates Foundation plenipotentiary Chris Elias, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and three apparatchiks from lesser Gates-funded consortia. WHO's Margaret Chan, UNICEF's director Anthony Lake, and Seth Berkeley of Gavi, who portray their deadly African DTP program as a public health triumph. These charlatans proclaimed DTP as one of the bright spots in global well-being and gasconaded that more children are being immunized worldwide than ever before with the highest level of routine coverage in history as measured by coverage of three doses of the diphtheria tetanus pertussis DTP containing vaccine. That project also involved reputationally demoting Abi with a defamation campaign.
a subsequent expert review by the founder of the Cochrane Collaborative, Peter Gotcha, condemned the WHO's attempt to downplay the risks of DTP vaccine. The WHO, he observed, had been dismissive of studies finding detrimental nonspecific effects for the DTP vaccine, while accepting studies finding beneficial nonspecific effects for the measles vaccine. The WHO is inconsistent and biased toward positive effects of vaccines. When a result pleases the WHO, it can be accepted, but not when a result does not please the WHO. Gotcha found the studies by Mogensen and Abi superior in every respect to the Gates-generated Lancet study. Gates and his WHO vassals continue to bully African nations into taking their lethal DTP vaccines by threatening to withdraw financial aid to their health departments and HIV programs if the government fails to achieve national uptake targets of 90%. Mercury rising. Many vaccines shipped to underdeveloped countries, including the hepatitis B, Haemophilus influenzae type B, and DTP inoculations, contain bolus doses of the mercury-based preservative and adjuvant thimerosal. The immunity provisions of the 1986 Vaccine Act gave a blank check to U.S. pharmaceutical companies to promote the most shoddily tested vaccines without consequences or cost. Pharma responded with a gold rush to add new lucrative vaccines to the schedule, and by 1991, mercury exposures to U.S. children from the vaccine preservative thimerosal had more than doubled. Parents, physicians, and researchers blamed a subsequent explosion of neurological and autoimmune disease on thimerosal. Alarmed at the exploding epidemics of neurodevelopmental, allergic, and autoimmune diseases in children that began in 1986, CDC commenced in 1999 an in-house study of the vast repository of health and vaccination data from the 10 largest HMOs stored in the Vaccine Safety Data Link, VSD. A specially assembled CDC research team led by Belgian epidemiologist Thomas Verstraeten, compared health outcomes in hundreds of thousands of vaccinated versus unvaccinated children. The raw data from CDC's 1999 Verstraeten study showed that children who took thimerosal-containing hepatitis B vaccines in their first 30 days suffered an astonishing 1,135% higher rate of autism than children who did not. Verstraeten also documented a grim inventory of other neurological injuries, including ADD, ADHD, speech and language delays, tics, and sleep disorders in children exposed to thimerosal. Verstraeten reported that these shocking signals prompted him to review for the first time the published medical literature, where he confirmed the alarming toxicity of mercury, thimerosal, to cause these injuries was biologically plausible. Overwhelming science, over 450 studies by then attested to thimerosal's devastating toxicity. 
because testosterone amplifies the neurotoxicity of the mercury molecule, boys disproportionately suffered reduced IQ and a range of developmental disorders, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, tics, Tourette's syndrome, narcolepsy, ASD, and autism following exposure to ethylmercury in thimerosal. Numerous studies link thimerosal to miscarriage and sudden infant death. There is simply no study ever published that demonstrates thimerosal's safety. In 2017, Robert De Niro and I hosted a packed press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. We offered a $100,000 reward to anyone who could point to such a study. A prestigious group of scientists, including UCLA Fielding School Emeritus Professor of Epidemiology and Statistics, Dr. Sander Greenland, toxicologist and past director of the Environmental Toxicology Program at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, Dr. George Lucier, and Dr. Bruce Lanfear of Simon Fraser University and British Columbia Children's Hospital, agreed to judge the study. There were no takers. In 2001, the Institute of Medicine recommended thimerosal's removal from all pediatric vaccines. In accordance with the IOM recommendation, manufacturers removed thimerosal from childhood vaccines, Hib, hepatitis B, and DTP, except multi-dose flu vaccines in the United States beginning in 2001. Japan and the European governments had already dramatically reduced mercury levels in their vaccines as early as 1993. The European and U.S. bans left pharma struggling to unload stocks and find new ways to monetize stranded assets, the hundreds of millions in production facilities committed to mercury-based vaccines. Bill Gates came to pharma's rescue. Gates helped pharmaceutical companies unload their thimerosal inventories by dumping them in developing countries. Merck, with the help of Bill Gates and Gavi, brokered a deal to donate, dump, one million doses of their thimerosal containing Recombivax HB hepatitis B vaccine to the Millennium Vaccine Initiative to African countries. The White House hailed Gates' corporate welfare initiative as an unprecedented level of corporate support in a press release issued March 3, 2000. Despite the discontinuance in Western nations, Bill Gates and WHO continue to use their power to force African children to submit to a battery of potentially dangerous mercury-laced pediatric vaccines. Strong evidence suggests that African boys with higher testosterone and chronic vitamin D deficiencies are far more vulnerable to vaccine and thimerosal injury than whites. When it comes to pharma profits, dead and brain-damaged African babies are merely collateral damage. In 2012, Dr. Fauci waxed philosophical when a reporter asked him to describe an example of one of his useful collaborations with Gates. Perhaps, he speculated, NIAID would work with Gates and Gavi on a project to remove thimerosal from African vaccines. 
What is used now is thimerosal, which is frowned upon because of concerns of mercury. So Seth Berkeley, Gates's Gavi director, and I were talking about finding a preservative for these multi-dose vials without thimerosal, so we no longer would have the baggage associated with it. By baggage, he apparently meant the millions of neurologically injured African children. There is no evidence that this particular collaboration survived its stillbirth as a hypothetical reverie. Eight years later, Africans are still carrying that toxic baggage. It's a crushing, often mortal, load. Lethal Malaria Vaccine Experiments Malaria claims some 655,000 lives annually, mostly African children aged under five. In 2010, the Gates Foundation funded with $300 million a Phase three trial of GlaxoSmithKline's experimental malaria vaccine, Muscarix, in seven African countries, aimed at young children because their immune system is still developing. GlaxoSmithKline contributed $500 million. NIAID contributed tens of millions in a battery of grants. Lesser funders included USAID, CDC, and Wellcome Trust. Gates is heavily invested in GSK. Apparently suspecting the vaccine might be lethal, Gates's team elected not to test it against a placebo. They used instead highly reactogenic meningitis and rabies vaccines that themselves were never tested against a placebo. The meningitis jab was famous for causing alarming numbers of injuries and deaths. The use of a reactogenic placebo, a so-called Focebo, is a deliberately fraudulent gimmick that unscrupulous vaccine companies deploy to mask injuries in the study cohort by purposefully inducing injuries among the placebo cohort. Clinical trials that omit true inert placebos marketing masquerading as science. Some 151 African infants died in the trial, and 1,048 of the 5,049 babies suffered serious adverse effects in both control and study groups, including paralysis, seizure, and febrile convulsions. Eager to secure the WHO approval necessary to license GSK's vaccine for global distribution, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation brushed aside the lethal outcomes of these experiments, declaring the trial a mild disappointment, but vowing to press on with the project, casualties be damned. The efficacy came back lower than we had hoped, but developing a vaccine against a parasite is a very hard thing to do. The trial is continuing, and we look forward to getting more data to help determine whether and how to deploy this vaccine. He demonstrated his resolve by donating an additional $200 million to finance more defective GSK research. Even with Gates's generous grubstake, GSK's crooked clinical trial researchers could only muster a feeble claim of 30% efficacy for their infanticidal jab. Undaunted, Gates rolled out Muscarix in 2019 as the first malaria vaccine in sub-Saharan Africa. It turned out to be another Genocide for Girls project. 
According to the publication Science, Muscarix's efficacy and durability are mediocre. Four doses offer only 30% protection against severe malaria for no more than four years. The biggest concerns, however, are about the vaccine's safety. BMJ's associate editor, Dr. Peter Doshi, points out, these were a rate of meningitis in those receiving muscarix ten times that of those who did not, increased cerebral malaria cases, and a doubling in the risk of death from any cause in girls. Dr. Doshi says WHO's malaria vaccine study represents a serious breach of international ethical standards. The demonstrated risk worried WHO so much that it retreated from its plan to roll out the vaccine across Africa in favor of smaller pilot programs in Malawi, Ghana, and Kenya that will administer the vaccine to hundreds of thousands of children instead of the 100 million that BMGF had hoped for. Virologists and academics around the world kept mum about Gates's muscaric deaths, Gates's plump purse, his impeccable connections, his power over the virology cartel, and the weakness and needs of African governments once again insulated him from the consequences of all these dead children, with the exception of Dr. Doshi. Lethal Meningitis Vaccine Experiments In 2010, Gates funded a Manafravac campaign in sub-Saharan Africa. Gates' operatives forcibly vaccinated thousands of African children against meningitis, causing approximately 50 of 500 vaccinated children to develop paralysis. Citing additional abuses, South African newspapers declared, We are guinea pigs for the drug makers. Professor Patrick Bond, a political economist who served in Nelson Mandela's South African government, describes Gates's unseemly business, philanthropic practices, and the agenda of the Gates Foundation as ruthless and immoral. Population and Sterilization Vaccines Early 20th century America saw the snowballing popularity of eugenics, a racist pseudoscience that aspired to eliminate human beings deemed unfit in favor of the Nordic stereotypes. Twenty-seven state governments enshrined elements of the philosophy as official policy by enacting forced sterilization and segregation laws and marriage restrictions. In 1909, California became the third state to adopt laws requiring sterilization of intellectually challenged Americans. Ultimately, eugenics practitioners coercively sterilized some 60,000 Americans. John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s keen interest in eugenics colored his passion for population control. The oil baron Sion joined the American Eugenics Society and served as trustee of the Bureau of Social Hygiene. The Rockefeller Foundation dispatched hefty donations in the 1920s and early 30s to hundreds of German researchers, including those conducting Hitler's notorious twins studies at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Human Heredity, and Eugenics in Berlin. 
The Rockefeller Foundation curtailed donations to Nazi Germany's medical institutions before Pearl Harbor, but Rockefeller's success promoting the eugenics movement had already captivated Adolf Hitler. Now that we know the laws of heredity, Hitler told a fellow Nazi, it is possible to a large extent to prevent unhealthy and severely handicapped beings from coming into the world. I have studied with interest the laws of several American states concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose progeny would, in all probability, be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock. In the early 1950s, the Rockefeller Foundation conducted fertility studies in India that historian Matthew Connolly characterizes as an example of American social science at its most hubristic. In one of the collaborations with the Harvard School of Public Health and India's Ministry of Health, the Rockefeller Foundation studied 8,000 tribal people in seven villages in the Kana section of Punjab to determine whether contraceptive tablets could dramatically reduce fertility rates. According to Lindsay Magoe, the villagers were treated like lab specimens subjected to monthly questioning but otherwise ignored. Rockefeller's researchers did not initially inform the Punjabis that their pills would prevent women from bearing children. Magoe describes the villagers as shocked, dismayed, and resentful to learn that the medication they credulously consumed was intended to render them infertile. Some were incensed by the effort to limit their future progeny. Over the next two decades, the Rockefeller Foundation conducted frequent anti-fertility programs in India and elsewhere, earning the growing animosity of physicians, human rights activists, and poverty specialists who criticized the Foundation for focusing on population growth while ignoring the realities of persistent poverty that makes large families so indispensable to Indian and African villagers. Today, Magoe adds, the Gates Foundation is pouring money into experimental medical trials that are facing criticism, similar to those directed at the Rockefeller Foundation's Kana study. Like earlier philanthropic foundations, the Gates Foundation has the financial and political clout to intervene in foreign nations with relative impunity and to remain unfazed when the experiments it funds go awry. Gates's fetish for reducing population is a family pedigree. His father, Bill Gates Sr., was a prominent corporate lawyer and civic leader in Seattle with a lifelong obsession for population control. Gates Sr. sat on the National Board of Planned Parenthood, a neo-progressive organization founded in 1916 by the racist eugenicist Margaret Sanger to promote birth control and sterilization and to purge human waste and create a race of thoroughbreds. Sanger said she hoped to purify the gene pool by eliminating the unfit persons with disabilities, preventing such persons from reproducing by surgical sterilization or other means. In 1939, Sanger created and directed the racist Negro Project, which strategically co-opted black ministers in leadership roles to promote contraceptives to their congregations. Sanger stated in a letter to her eugenics colleague Clarence Gamble 
of Procter & Gamble, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. When I was growing up, my parents were always involved in various volunteer things, Gates told Bill Moyers in 2003. My dad was head of Planned Parenthood, and it was very controversial to be involved with that. Overpopulation, Gates' father told Salon in a 2015 interview, was an interest he's had since he was a kid. In 1994, the elder Gates formed the William H. Gates Foundation, the family's first, focused on reproductive and child health in the developing world. Population control was an enduring preoccupation of his son's philanthropy from its inception. Gates has made a long parade of public statements and investments that reflect his deep dread of overpopulation. He describes himself as an admirer and proponent of the population doomsayer Paul Ehrlich, author of The Population Bomb, whom Gates describes as the world's most prominent environmental Cassandra, meaning a prophet who accurately predicts misfortune or disaster. By the way, I share Gates's fear that if humanity persists in juxtaposing exponential population expansion atop linear resource growth, we will all land in a nightmarish Malthusian dystopia. I'm troubled, however, by his apparent comfort in using coercive and mendacious tactics to trick poor people into dangerous and unwanted contraceptive programs. The proven paths to zero population growth are the mitigation of poverty and empowerment of women. Women with alternative career opportunities seldom choose the heavy and hazardous burden of serial maternity. Virtually every nation with a stable middle class has fertility below replacement rates. But Gates's careless public statements and the programs that he habitually funds suggests that Gates has involved himself in sketchy stealth campaigns to sterilize dark-skinned and marginalized women without their informed consent, including by the deceptive use of dangerous sterility vaccines. On February 20, 2010, less than one month after he famously committed $10 billion to the WHO, Bill Gates suggested in his Innovating to Zero TED Talk in Long Beach, California, that reducing world population growth could be done in part with new vaccines. The world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Here he is almost quoting Bryant et al. Now if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. Gates's defenders and the Gates-subsidized fact-checker organizations scoff at critics who interpret literally Gates's 2010 statement that he hoped to use vaccines to reduce population. They explain that Gates intended by this inartful construct to suggest that life-saving vaccines will allow more infants to survive to adulthood, thereby reassuring impoverished parents that they need not have so many children. But this hypothesis rests on the sketchy premise that his vaccines reduce child mortality, a proposition that Gates has never demonstrated, 
and that current science does not support. His peculiar choice of words naturally fueled speculation that he was engaging in a premeditated campaign to use vaccines to sterilize women. His questionable antics in promoting anti-fertility drugs and WHO's widespread use of stealth sterility vaccines credibly fuels such sentiments. Depo Provera, a cruel irony. Population control has been the central preoccupation of the Gates Foundation since its inception. In 1999, Gates's $2.2 billion commitment to the UN Population Fund doubled the size of the Gates Foundation. The same year, he funded, with a $20 million contribution, the founding of the Johns Hopkins Center for Population. In 2017, the Gates Foundation adopted the goal of administering contraceptives to 214 million women in poor countries. Gates's contraceptive of choice is the long-term infertility agent Depo-Provera, Population planners have administered Depo-Provera primarily to poor and black women in the United States since its invention in 1967. In the United States, 84% of Depo-Provera users are black and 74% are low-income. Depo-Provera's biggest promoter, Planned Parenthood, specifically targets blacks and Latinas in its marketing campaigns. UN data demonstrate that Depo-Provera is seldom administered to white or affluent women or girls in the United States or Europe. Depo-Provera is a powerful poison with a devastating inventory of wretched side effects. Under federal law, the Depo-Provera label must bear FDA's most stringent black box warning due to its potential to cause fatal bone loss. Furthermore. Women have reported both missed periods and excessive bleeding, blood clots in arms, legs, lungs, and eyes, stroke, weight gain, ectopic pregnancy, depression, hair loss, decreased libido, and permanent infertility. Some studies have associated Depo-Provera with dramatic increases, 200%, in breast cancer risk. The FDA warns women not to take Depo-Provera for longer than two years, but Gates's program prescribes at least a four-year course, or indefinitely, for African women and goes to great lengths to avoid warning black women about the concoction's many drawbacks. Between 1994 and 2006, Bill and Melinda Gates teamed with the Rockefeller and Andrew W. Mellon Foundations, the Population Council, and USAID to fund a seminal family planning experiment administering Depo-Provera to approximately 9,000 impoverished women in the town of Navrongo and districts of Ghana. Though USAID's stated underlying principles for family planning are volunteerism and informed choice, it hasn't always worked out that way. A disturbing 2011 expose of the collaboration by the Rebecca Project for Justice, the outsourcing of Tuskegee, non-consensual research in Africa, documented how Gates's researchers lied to the Navrongo women, telling them that they were receiving routine health care and or social observations, 
never informing them that they were part of a population control experiment. Gates's researchers violated U.S. research laws by failing to administer informed consent forms to the women they injected with Depo-Provera, nor did they obtain Institutional Review Board, IRB, approval for a human experiment that lasted an extraordinary six years. Under direction of Dr. James Phillips, Gates's PIs deliberately fabricated and falsified research data to fraudulently prove Depo-Provera safe. Based on such proofs, in 2011, Gates expanded his project to fund Depo-Provera programs for some 12 million women across sub-Saharan Africa. That same year, 2011, a study by another prestigious BMGF and NIH-funded research team from Gates's own Washington School of Public Health published an article in Lancet Infectious Diseases, Heffron et al., 2012, reporting that African women who used injectable Depo-Provera were much more likely to acquire HIV-AIDS compared to untreated women. Depo-Provera injections double a woman's risk of contracting and transmitting HIV. This result was not an enormous surprise. For 24 years, Diverse studies have shown that Depo-Provera thins the vaginal wall, easing transmission of HIV. Furthermore, the researchers found Depo-Provera exacerbates the rates of HIV-AIDS infections to a recipient's sexual partners. Despite her funding from Gates, the study's lead author, Dr. Renee Heffron, and her fellow researchers recommended informing HIV-infected women of Depo-Provera's grave risks and to use alternative non-progesterone-based contraceptives. Women should be counseled about potentially increased risk of HIV-1 acquisition and transmission. The confirmation of the risk by his own scientists posed an obvious conundrum for Gates since it pitted his passion for population control against his avowed commitment to end the spread of HIV in Africa. Population, it turns out, trumps HIV prevention in Bill Gates's catechism. Without offering any scientific research to substantiate their claims, Gates' deputies, a cabal of extreme population control advocates linked to Gates, worked with Pfizer intermediaries to viciously attack Heffron's research findings. The critics included BMGF, Planned Parenthood, the UN, Ronald Gray of the Gates-funded Johns Hopkins University, James Shelton of USAID's Office of Population, and others. Under these fierce attacks by Gates' minions in the medical cartel, Dr. Heffron and her research team courageously stood their ground and retained their professional integrity. The Lancet published Heffron's withering response. Dr. Heffron pointed out that her attackers cited no convincing science and that the two recent studies by Heffron and the WSPH team capped a quarter-century of published research documenting increased HIV risk among women taking Depo-Provera. To combat this crisis, WHO, by then wearing Bill Gates' boot on its neck, convened a group of hand-picked experts, all sworn to secrecy, for a closed-door meeting in Geneva on January 31st, 2012, 
to discuss damage control on the Heffron study and the mountain of HIV research that supported her. On February 16, 2012, WHO in its mysterious expert cabal, unsurprisingly, announced its preordained decision. Women living with HIV-AIDS or at high risk of HIV-AIDS can safely use Depo-Provera. Betsy Hartman, a longtime reproductive rights advocate, ridiculed WHO's convenient new guidelines. This reversal, despite 25 years of studies citing an increased risk of HIV transmission among women using it, raises question marks whether WHO abandoned caution due to outside encouragement by special interest groups. Hartman was clearly referring to BMGF. In the wake of WHO's self-serving declaration, Melinda Gates announced in July 2012 a billion-dollar contribution as BMGF's share of a $4 billion collaboration with USAID, PATH, and Pfizer with the goal of promoting Pfizer's Depo-Provera across sub-Saharan Africa. Pfizer and USAID committed the remaining $3 billion to African contraceptive projects. Outcry and censure from dozens of international women's rights advocates and reproductive health groups greeted Melinda Gates's announcement. According to a detailed report by Jacob Levitch, the real agenda of the Gates Foundation, Mrs. Gates minimized the proven risk of acquiring HIV-AIDS with Depo-Provera by directing the public to a contrived eight-page technical statement published by the Gates Foundation's supplicants at WHO, assuring the public that Depo-Provera is safe and that all contrary scientific research that linked Depo-Provera to HIV infection was inconclusive. To quell the growing uproar, Gates funded a WHO study to debunk the HIV Association once and for all. This time, he skipped over Heffron to fund a more reliable group of researchers. Environmental lawyers call this sort biostitutes. On October 21, 2015, WHO released its investigation, which not surprisingly concluded that there is no evidence of a causal association between DMPA use and an incidence in women's risk of HIV acquisition. WHO then issued new guidelines that mirror precisely those recommended by Pfizer, Depo-Provera's manufacturer. Some 40 reproductive health groups demanded that WHO's director, Margaret Chan, sideline the new guidelines until Gates's study could survive a rigorous reevaluation process. WHO ignored those pleas. The centerpiece of the Gates' $4 billion caper is a self-injection syringe, a plastic bubble attached to a needle, for administering Depo-Provera. Pfizer creates the gizmo, but Gates's Seattle-based legate, PATH, markets it under the new brand name Cyana Press. PATH's former director, Chris Elias, was by then president of the BMGF. Through PATH, Gates will distribute these devices, costing a dollar per three-month dose, to 120 million women in 69 of the world's poorest countries. 
With contributions that Gates plans to squeeze from those governments, these lucky ladies will pay little or none of the cost. Pfizer, of course, will make a killing. According to the Wall Street Journal's Market Watch, Pfizer could potentially earn approximately $36 billion in sales, resulting from an unprecedented Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation investment, $560 million from BMGF, totaling $4.3 billion with government contributions that promotes Depo-Provera as the optimum contraceptive for women of color and low-income women. Levitch explains that this scheme is a cunning dodge to evade U.S. regulations that require Pfizer's label include its dire black box warning bearing the words FDA, black box, warning, and osteoporosis, and that the administering clinician inform every recipient that the drug poses life-threatening harm. In the United States, pharmacists can never dispense Depo-Provera directly to a patient to self-inject, since the law requires that medical personnel counsel each patient about risks. Ignoring these safeguards in Africa would expose Pfizer to criminal prosecution and thousands of lawsuits under the Alien Tort Claims Act, which could allow aggrieved African women to sue negligent U.S. drug makers in U.S. courts if they suffer injuries as the result of failure to warn. Pfizer's apparent strategy for insulating itself from liability is to use PATH and BMGF as surrogates to market its contraception. Furthermore, to promote Depo-Provera's uptake among blacks, PATH makes a series of outlaw off-label claims that Pfizer could not legally make about the product. PATH claims that Depo-Provera protects against endometrial cancer and uterine fibroids, and reduces risks of sickle cell anemia and iron deficiency anemia, diseases that disparately injure blacks. FDA has never approved Depo-Provera for cancer prevention or for any of these other uses. It is therefore illegal for Pfizer to promote these off-label claims. Presenting Gates and PATH as its intermediaries is apparently also Pfizer's strategy for evading U.S. laws that prohibit off-label claims. Levitch adds, these statements taken in totality are contextually false and designed to specifically circumvent the FDA's black box warnings. If Depo-Provera is genuinely a safe and effective contraceptive with only minimal side effects, why then are Gates, Hopkins, USAID, Planned Parenthood, and Pfizer's other intermediaries deliberately concealing the plain black-letter FDA black-box warnings in their effort to minimize and conceal Depo-Provera's life-threatening harm. Put bluntly, Gates and his Confederates are tricking African women into taking the contraceptive by deceiving them about its safety and lying about its efficacy against diseases that disproportionately harm blacks something Pfizer executives could go to jail for. Gates's willing partner in this fraud is USAID. USAID's director, Dr. Rajiv Shah, has been a serial co-conspirator in Gates's many racist flim-flams. For a decade prior to his gig running USAID, 
Shaw worked for Bill Gates's foundation, 2001 to 2010, as the principal fundraiser for Gavi's world immunization programs. Shaw candidly acknowledged that BMGF's and PATH's stamp of approval on Depo-Provera serves as a clever strategy for insulating Pfizer from criminal and civil prosecution for violating FDA regulations. Gates's caper aims to artfully remove the FDA's jurisdiction by using PATH as its surrogate and by effectively transferring regulatory authority to the WHO. The Rebecca Project for Justice characterizes Gates's African project as a family planning strategy that unethically targets women of color to prohibit births of beautiful black children by not informing mothers of Depo Provera's deadly risks as mandated under U.S. law regulations, thus denying women of color their inalienable right to choose and access safe reproductive health. Depo Provera came honestly to its notoriety as the tool of choice for racist eugenicists. Israel banned Depo Provera in 2013 following a scandal in which government health workers seeking to radically reduce the number of black births were targeting African Jews with Depo Provera. Sharona Eliyahu Chai, lawyer for the Association of Civil Rights in Israel, ACRI, condemned the government policy of preventing black Israelis from reproducing. Findings from investigations into the use of Depo Provera are extremely worrisome, raising concerns of harmful health policies with racist implications in violation of medical ethics. In 2002, India banned this dangerous drug from all family welfare programs after a similar scandal. Government officials were targeting lower-caste Indians. Many other nations, including Bahrain, Israel, Jordan, Kuwait, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, prohibit the use of Depo Provera on their nationals. European countries largely restrict the use of Depo Provera and require full disclosure of risks for women and informed consent prior to its use. Gates and USAID have taken advantage of political disorganization in Pakistan to administer self-inject Depo Provera to Muslim women. In contrast to its U.S. counterpart, USAID, the Swedish International Development Authority, CEDA, does not fund, purchase, or provide Depo Provera for Swedish-assisted projects in developing countries. Sterility Vaccines, Chemical Castration Gates's defenders ridicule as conspiracy theory the suggestion that Gates or any reputable public health authority would use life-saving vaccines as a stealth vehicle for surreptitiously rendering women infertile. But one of Gates's earliest philanthropic undertakings was a 2002 project to administer tetanus vaccines to poor women in 57 countries. For reasons we are about to discover, critics credibly suggest that these vaccines may have been secretly laced with a formula the Rockefeller Foundation developed to sterilize women against their will. On November 6, 
2014, four years after Gates pledged at a TED Talk to use vaccines to lower birth rates, medical researchers and doctors associated with the Kenya Conference of Catholic Bishops, KCCB, and the Kenya Catholic Health Commission accused WHO, UNICEF, and Gavi of secretly conducting a mass sterilization program against Kenyan women under the veil of eradicating tetanus disease. The Washington Post reported similar charges by the Kenya Catholic Doctors Association, KCDA. The Catholic doctors became suspicious due to WHO's glaring departures from the usual tetanus vaccine protocols. Normally, a single tetanus vaccine provides a decade of immunity. Since men and women are equally susceptible, both sexes routinely get the vaccine. But WHO instructed Kenyan doctors to give the vaccine in five administrations, six months apart, and only to girls of childbearing years. The defense that the WHO intended only to target maternal and neonatal tetanus seems odd in view of the fact that males are about as likely as females to be exposed to the bacterium, which is found in the soil everywhere there are animals, observed a 2011 peer-reviewed study of the controversy. The Catholic doctors also noticed other unusual features of the campaign. For starters, WHO suspiciously initiated its jab campaign not from a hospital or medical center, or any of the estimated 60 local vaccination facilities, but distributed shots from the luxurious New Stanley Hotel in Nairobi, an exclusive resort out of reach to most physicians or public health officials. At considerable cost, a police escort accompanied the shots to vaccination sites, where police officers strictly supervised their handling by nursing staff and required clinicians to return each empty vial to WHO officials at Nairobi's only five-star hotel under the watchful eyes of armed officers. Four years later, in October 2019, the Kenyan Catholic Doctors Association accused UNICEF, Gavi, and the WHO of rendering millions of women and girls barren. The doctors had by then produced chemical analyses of vaccines, verifying their allegations. Three independent Nairobi-accredited biochemistry laboratories tested samples of the WHO tetanus vaccine, finding human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG, where none should be present. In October 2014, Catholic doctors obtained six additional vials, and tested them in six accredited laboratories, finding HCG in half of those samples. In 2019, a group of independent researchers from Kenya and Great Britain, led by University of British Columbia neurologist Dr. Christopher Shaw, studied the charges and concluded that the Kenya anti-tetanus campaign was reasonably called into question by the Kenya Catholic Doctors Association as a front for population growth reduction. The medical researchers characterized the WHO program an ethical breach of the obligation on the side of the WHO to obtain informed consent from those Kenyan girls and women. Catholic medical personnel 
made similar accusations about WHO's tetanus projects in Tanzania, Nicaragua, Mexico, and the Philippines. Following indignant denials of all such accusations and obligatory denunciations against its accusers, WHO grudgingly admitted it had been developing the sterility vaccines for decades. WHO nevertheless punished the Kenyan doctors and the community officials who reported the spiked vaccine by canceling contracts for future work. The Sordid History of Sterility Vaccines It wasn't the first time that Catholic medical authorities accused the WHO of a stealth sterilization campaign against African women. As early as November 1993, Catholic publications charged that the WHO was spiking tetanus vaccines to neuter dark-skinned women globally with potent abortifacients. WHO denied the explosive charges. Shaw's research team showed that WHO and Rockefeller Foundation scientists began research on anti-fertility vaccines for birth control as early as 1972 by lacing HCG with tetanus toxoid, which acts as a carrier for the hormone. That year, WHO researchers at a meeting of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences reported their successful creation of a birth control vaccine that diminishes the beta-HCG essential to a successful pregnancy and causes at least temporary infertility. Subsequent experiments proved that repeated doses could extend infertility indefinitely. By 1976, WHO scientists had successfully conjugated a functional birth control vaccine. The WHO researchers reported triumphantly that their formula could induce abortions in females already pregnant and or infertility in recipients not yet impregnated. They observed that repeated inoculations prolong infertility. More recently, in 2017, WHO researchers were working on more potent anti-fertility vaccines using recombinant DNA. WHO publications explain that the agency's long-range purpose is to reduce population growth in unstable, less developed countries. The Kenyan tetanus campaign occurred shortly after Gates made his pledge of $10 billion to the WHO with the stated purpose of reducing population with new vaccines. Perhaps to emphasize his commitment to population control, Gates recruited his most influential vizier, Christopher Elias, as president of global development at the Gates Foundation in the following year. Prior to that appointment, Dr. Elias was president CEO of Gates' nonprofit PATH, which partners with pharmaceutical companies to distribute vaccines to poor countries by persuading rich and poor governments to fork over moolah to multinational drug makers in which Gates is invested. Elias ran PATH's innovative Cyana Press injectable Depot Provera project designed to end-run U.S. safety regulations while reducing fertility of black African women. That brainchild earned Elias the Klaus Schwab Foundation's 
Social Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2005. The Gates Foundation provided numerous grants to PATH, including one in November 2020, after Elias had moved over to BMGF to support clinical development of COVID-19 vaccines by Chinese manufacturers. Before PATH, Elias had been senior associate in the International Programs Division of the Population Council, with the responsibility of dampening fecundity throughout Southeast Asia. John D. Rockefeller III founded the Population Council in 1952 at a conference he convened for the High Priesthood of Population Control, including the director of the new Planned Parenthood Federation of America and several well-known eugenicists. Lamenting that modern civilization had reduced the operation of natural selection by saving more weak lives and enabling them to reproduce, resulting in a downward trend in genetic quality, the group agreed to create an organization devoted to the reduction of fertility. While Rockefeller formally launched the council with a grant of $100,000 and served as the first president, the next two council presidents were Frederick Osborne and Frank Notstein, both members of the American Eugenics Society. The NIH and USAID were among the startup funders, and U.S. and foreign governments soon became the council's largest financial backers. The council does research promoting the use of artificial birth control and abortion and biomedical research to discover and develop new contraceptive drugs and technologies. It collaborated with the Ford Foundation and International Planned Parenthood Foundation to develop large-scale IUD programs abroad, despite its own research doctors warning about acute adverse side effects. Later, the Council played a key role in developing the extremely dangerous hormonal contraceptive implant, Norplant. Historian Donald T. Critchlow wrote that the Population Council cultivated elite connections and avoided public controversy by identifying itself as a neutral scientific organization. The U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, conducted a decades-long partnership with the Population Council and cultivated long-term alliances with the Rockefeller Foundation and the WHO, researching the use of fertility controls to reduce world population, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. By 2014, Gates and Elias had a reliable collaborator at the federal program, USAID Director Rajiv Shah, who had, prior to winning that appointment, worked a decade for the Gates Foundation, running Gavi's immunization program for African children. Dr. Shah joined the Gates Foundation in 2001 and oversaw its alliance with the Rockefeller Foundation in launching the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. He directed the International Finance Facility for Immunization. The IFFI is a shady agency that finances Bill Gates' global vaccine enterprises in developing nations through a diabolically innovative bond issuance scheme that runs up huge debts in poor countries to finance Gates' self-serving vaccines. Using sleight of hand, 
IFFI enriches Gates's pharma partners with Western financial bonds by passing the costs to future generations in poor countries. Shaw raised $5 billion through this swindle for Gavi. At USAID, his primary responsibility was reorganizing the agency to reflect its new biosecurity direction under Obama's 2009 executive order. Shaw left USAID to become president of the Rockefeller Foundation in 2017. Shaw has deep links to the intelligence agencies and the oil and chemical cartels. Shaw serves on both the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations, two globalist organizations that the Rockefeller-Kissinger Alliance largely defined. Shaw is a board member of the International Rescue Committee, a nonprofit with long-standing CIA ties. In his 1991 book, Covert Network, Progressives, the International Rescue Committee, and the CIA, University of Massachusetts economics professor Eric Thomas Chester exposes IRC as a CIA front. Bill Casey, a lifelong spy, who, as Ronald Reagan's CIA director, helped manage the Iran-Contra affair in the 1980s, chaired IRC from 1970 to 1971. IRC operates in 40 countries doing humanitarian aid. According to its current CEO, David Miliband, the former UK Foreign Secretary, Shah's role on the high-level council is to monitor political and non-health issues related to prevention and preparedness imperatives for a potential epidemic of global proportions. In 1974, USAID and WHO collaborated on the creation of a top-secret Kissinger report. Henry Kissinger, whose patron was Nelson Rockefeller and whose career was deeply enmeshed with the Rockefeller Foundation, drafted the classified White Paper, which became official U.S. policy under President Gerald Ford in 1975. That report known as the U.S. National Security Study Memorandum 200, outlined the geopolitical incentives for reducing population growth in less developed countries, LDCs, to near zero by reducing fertility so as to safeguard the economic interests of the United States and other industrialized nations in imported mineral resources. Kissinger observed, that the industrialized West was already having to import significant quantities of aluminum, copper, iron, lead, nickel, tin, uranium, zinc, chromium, vanadium, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium, cobalt, manganese, molybdenum, tungsten, titanium, sulfur, nitrogen, petroleum, and natural gas at high cost. The Kissinger report anticipated rising prices as population growth triggered instability in African nations. The high-level U.S. government commitment explains the WHO's monumental commitment to sterility vaccines. Shaw et al. found 150 research publications emanating from WHO on various infertility formulations between 1976 and 2016 with many thousands of citations. In the years 1993 and 1994, 
WHO launched anti-fertility vaccination campaigns in Nicaragua, Mexico, the Philippines, and Kenya in 1995. In each country, WHO and local government clinicians vaccinated women of childbearing age, telling them that the purpose of the WHO immunizations was to eliminate maternal and neonatal tetanus. A subsequent WHO study of birth control policy, Bryant et al., acknowledged that WHO's family planning services had involved routinely deceiving the persons served, with sterilization procedures being applied without full consent of the patient. Similarly, a 1992 study titled Fertility Regulating Vaccines, published by the UN and WHO Program of Research Training in Human Reproduction, reported cases of abuse in family planning programs dating from the 1970s, including incentives such as women being sterilized without their knowledge, being enrolled in trials of oral contraceptives or injectables without consent, and not being informed of possible side effects of the intrauterine device, IUD. The authors of that WHO report advised their partners against characterizing their work as anti-fertility measures for population control, observing that milder descriptions like family planning and planned parenthood were more palatable for public appetites. Speaking on behalf of the WHO, Bryant et al. admitted it is perhaps more conducive to a rights-based approach to implement family planning programs in response to the welfare needs of people and communities rather than in response to international concern for global overpopulation. The targeted regions for the WHO tetanus campaigns are principally the same developing nations that the Kissinger Report targeted. For example, a 2015 news release by Associated Press announced tetanus immunization campaigns to take place in Chad, Kenya, and South Sudan by the end of 2015 and contribute toward eliminating maternal natal tetanus in Pakistan and Sudan in 2016, saving the lives of countless mothers and their newborn babies. The Kenya schedule was identical to the one published for the WHO birth control conjugate of tetanus toxoid linked to beta-HCG. Five spaced doses of TT vaccine at six-month intervals, which, of course, strongly contrasts with the published schedule for authentic tetanus immunization schedules. Raja Bill and his Indian Jabs Polio Vaccine Following his seminal meeting with Dr. Fauci in 2000, Gates launched a global polio vaccine campaign, pledging $450 million through BMGF of a $1.2 billion total and promising to eradicate polio by decade's end. Improved nutrition, disease management, and UNICEF's vaccine program had vanquished polio in India in 2011, meaning that the disease occurred in fewer than 300 people per year. Doctors diagnosed just over 200 new cases in 2012. WHO declared the malady eradicated 
after its five-year near-absence in 2016. By that year, polio affected only about 2,000 sufferers globally. The last few hundred cases of an endemic disease are always the most difficult and expensive to prevent. But, apparently, the glory of claiming the triumph for its total obliteration appealed to Bill Gates as an irresistible challenge. He vowed against sage advice to eradicate polio and successfully exhorted rich and poor nations to finance his cause. Even the high-end polio vaccines used in Western nations are linked to injuries and illnesses that dwarf historical harms from polio. A short list of these include the highly contagious SV40 monkey virus that scientists believe is responsible for the explosion of deadly soft tissue cancers in baby boomers and the chimpanzee Coriza agent that entered polio vaccines at the Walter Reed Hospital Laboratories in 1955 and caused the devastating pandemic of respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, that the WHO estimates today causes 3 million hospitalizations annually and 60,000 deaths in children under 5 and 14,000 deaths among adults 65 years and older. In order to discourage public discussion of those embarrassing abscesses on its sacred cow, HHS in 1984, the year Anthony Fauci became director of NIAID, quietly pushed through an astonishing federal regulation that reflected the agency's institutional culture of paranoia, secrecy, and imperiousness, but not America's democratic values or the U.S. Constitution. Any possible doubts, whether or not well-founded, about the safety of the vaccine cannot be allowed to exist in view of the need to assure that the vaccines will continue to be used to the maximum extent consistent with the nation's public health objectives. Federal Register, Volume 49, Number 107. Most Americans are shocked to learn that today this abominable regulation is the law of our land. To complicate these problems, the low-rent polio vaccines Gates uses in Africa and Asia are dramatically different from those used in Western countries. The BMGF committed more than $1 billion pushing an oral polio vaccine, OPV, that contains a live polio virus across the global south. This live virus can replicate inside a child's gut and spread in regions with substandard sanitation and plumbing. That means people can contract the virus from the vaccine. Gates's program created windfall profits for pharmaceutical behemoths that could not market such dangerous products in Western countries. Experts argued that Gates's attempts to exterminate polio would be counterproductive Extirpating the final dwindling deadhead infections requires carpet-bombing entire regions with massive vaccination batteries, raising the paradoxical risk of vaccine-strain polio epidemics. I can't see myself how we can satisfactorily eliminate the vaccine-derived strains, said Professor Donald Henderson, a distinguished scholar at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center for Biosecurity. 
I just don't think it can be done. Henderson is the renowned WHO epidemiologist who led the successful campaign against smallpox during the 1960s. Ignoring such advice, Gates declared war on polio in India and implemented a shock-and-awe strategy to exterminate those last few cases. Gates took control of India's Vaccine Oversight Panel, the National Advisory Board, NAB, by stacking it with loyalists and friendly PIs. Under his control, the NAB mandated an astonishing barrage of 50 polio vaccines, up from five, for each child in several key Indian provinces before they reached the age of five. As Henderson predicted, vaccine-derived polio virus, a mutation of the virus contained in the oral vaccine, came back to bite gates, and the unfortunate populations of the nations that submitted to his prescriptions. Indian doctors blame the Gates campaign for a devastating vaccine strain epidemic of acute flaccid myelitis, a disease formerly classified as polio, that paralyzed 491,000 children in these provinces between 2000 and 2017 in direct proportion to the number of polio vaccines that Dr. Gates's minions administered in each area. Non-polio acute flaccid paralysis, NPAFP, is clinically indistinguishable from polio, but twice as deadly, according to Keith Van Herren, child neurologist at the Stanford School of Medicine. Van Herren explains that acute flaccid myelitis, AFM, is a polite term for polio. It actually looks just like polio, but that term really freaks out the public health people. In 2012, the British medical journal Riley noted that polio eradication in India has been achieved by renaming the disease. That year, the disillusioned Indian government dialed back Gates's vaccine regimen and evicted Gates's cronies and PIs from the NAB. Polio paralysis rates dropped precipitously. After squandering half of its total budget on the polio epidemic at Gates's direction, the WHO reluctantly admitted that the global polio explosion is predominantly vaccine strain, meaning it is happening because of Gates's vaccine program. The most frightening epidemics in Congo, the Philippines, and Afghanistan are all linked to the vaccines he promoted. Polio had disappeared altogether from each of those nations until Gates reintroduced the dreaded disease with his vaccine. In Syria, the Gates-backed Gavi committed $25 million for polio immunization in 2016. The following year, the WHO reported that 58 Syrian children had been paralyzed by the vaccine-derived form of the virus. Other vaccine-strained polio outbreaks occurred in China, Egypt, Haiti, and Malaysia. A study by Oxford's Clinical Infectious Diseases Periodical found that Gates's oral polio vaccine is not only giving kids polio, but also seems to be ineffective in stopping polio transmission. By 2018, the WHO conceded 70% of global polio cases came from Gates's
vaccines. As the British Medical Journal reported in 2012, the most recent mass polio vaccination programs in India, fueled by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, resulted in increased cases of polio. In an interview with NPR, Professor of Microbiology Raul Endino said, It's actually an interesting conundrum. The very tool you are using for polio eradication is causing the problem. Dr. Henderson argued that Gates's futile campaign would strip money from other areas of need, forcing nations to prioritize polio immunization at the expense of other public health investments. Arthur Kaplan, an eminent bioethicist and a polio vaccine fanatic who himself suffered from polio as a child, also criticized Gates's obsession with polio eradication, pointing out that government budgets and resources in poor nations are diverted from other far more pressing local problems to try and capture the last marginal cases. Donald Henderson observes that only Western nations and billionaires like Gates consider eliminating the disease as a priority. Polio kills far fewer people in developing regions than scourges such as malaria, TB, malnutrition, and the greatest killer, dysentery from deficient water supplies. When Gates first floated his dream of eradicating polio, developing nations feared a diversion of resources towards an area where the money was least warranted. When you're doing polio, you're not doing other things, Henderson says. At least through 2011, in several countries, Nigeria, India, and Pakistan, they were giving polio vaccines. In 2012, there were only 223 reported cases of polio worldwide. By any measure, polio is not one of the world's greatest killers. Road accidents, for example, kill about 1.25 million people each year. Measles kills about 150,000 children each year. A number of villagers say, what is polio? We've never seen it. Why are we worried about it? Rather than provoking re-evaluation, Henderson's concern seems to infuriate Gates. I've got to get my D.A. Henderson response down better, Gates mumbled to one of his aides in 2011, after the New York Times editorial board interviewed him during his Transglobal Trek, soliciting rich and poor governments to ratchet up their commitment to his polio enterprise. A reporter overheard and reported Gates's whispered comment. That response suggests that he is aware of the criticism by the man most knowledgeable about eradicating diseases. Instead of integrating Henderson's critique into his strategy or executing a mid-course correction, Gates treated Henderson's caveats as a marketing challenge and lumbered onward. His imperviousness to self-assessment allows him to treat the hundreds of thousands of casualties of his policies as acceptable collateral damage in his self-serving schemes for humanity. Gates's strategic investments have made him immune to criticism by the media and the scientific community, and so... Despite these atrocities, the Gates Foundation steers WHO like a rogue destroyer floundering forward full speed ahead through the mayhem and the carnage of dead and paralyzed children 
whose ruined lives bob in their wake. In 2020, the BMGF boasted that the WHO is now providing unprecedented levels of technical assistance for polio vaccination campaigns in Nigeria, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. HPV vaccine. In 2009 and 2012, the Gates Foundation funded tests of experimental HPV vaccines developed by Gates's partners GSK and Merck on 23,000 girls 11 to 14 years old in remote provinces of India. These experiments were part of Gates's effort to bolster those companies' sketchy claims that HPV vaccines protect women against cervical cancer that might develop in old age. Gates and his foundation have large investments in both companies. Since deaths from cervical cancer occur on average at age 58 in the United States and affect only 1 in 40,000 women, and since virtually all these deaths are preventable with early detection by pap smears, any vaccine given to young girls to prevent the low risk of preventable death half a century from now ought to be 100% safe. And this vaccine isn't even close. Both Merck and Glaxo disclosed in their shareholders' reports that profitable performances by their flagship HPV vaccines were top indicators of shareholder value. Gardasil has been a top seller for Merck, earning total global sales of $1.2 billion in 2011, a windfall for the company floundering to recover from a $7 billion court settlement related to criminal charges that the company had knowingly killed between 100,000 and 500,000 Americans by defrauding customers about the safety of its blockbuster pain pill Vioxx. Merck's executives nicknamed the HPV vaccine Help Pay for Vioxx and fast-tracked it to market after shoddy safety tests under pressure from Wall Street analysts itching to downgrade Merck's buy recommendations. At least 1,200 of the girls in Gates's study, one in 20, suffered severe side effects, including autoimmune and fertility disorders. Seven died, about 10 times the U.S. death rates for cervical cancer, which almost never kills the young. India's Federal Ministry of Health suspended the trials and appointed an expert parliamentary committee to investigate the scandal. Indian government investigators found that Gates-funded researchers at PATH committed pervasive ethical violations, pressuring vulnerable village girls into the trial, bullying illiterate parents, and forging consent forms. Gates provided health insurance for his PATH staff, but not to any participants in the trials, and refused medical care to the hundreds of injured girls. The PATH researchers targeted girls at ashram Pathshalas, boarding schools for tribal children, to dodge the need to seek parental consent for the shots. They gave the girls HPV immunization cards that were printed in English, which the girls couldn't read. They did not tell the girls that they were part of a clinical trial, and instead hoodwinked them with the lie that these were wellness shots that would guarantee lifelong protection against cancer. That was not true.
Path conducted the trials in impoverished rural areas that lacked mechanisms for tracking the adverse effects and had no system for recording major adverse reactions to the vaccines, something legally mandated for large-scale clinical trials. In 2010, the Indian Council of Medical Ethics found that the Gates Group had violated India's ethical protocols. In August 2013, a special parliamentary committee excoriated PATH, stating that the NGO's sole aim has been to promote the commercial interests of HPV vaccine manufacturers who would have reaped windfall profits had PATH been successful in getting the HPV vaccine included in the UIP, Universal Immunization Program, of the country. According to Dr. Colin Gonsalves, Senior Counsel of the Supreme Court of India, the Indian Parliament formed a committee, and it was to be a rather surprising move because you generally don't often have such a high-level inquiry into matters affecting poor people, and that was such an extraordinary report. I don't think the Indian Parliament has ever come out with such a scathing report. And the government officials came out and said, we shouldn't have authorized this, we're sorry, and we're not going to allow them again, and now they are back, doing their same old tricks again. In 2013, two separate groups of health activists and human rights advocates filed public interest litigation, PIL, petitions, calling on India's Supreme Court to investigate the HPV trials and determine whether PATH and other stakeholders responsible for the trial should be held liable for financial damages in relation to the families of the seven deceased girls. One of the lead petitioners, Amar Jasani, a physician who directs the Center for Studies in Ethics and Rights in Mumbai, told Professor Magoi that he regrets that he did not add the Gates Foundation as a defendant. The ethical guidelines of the Indian Council for Medical Research talks about totality of responsibility. It defines the totality of responsibility in terms of everybody. That means sponsor, involved, Jasani said. Under that principle, everyone should be held responsible. There is also no evidence at the moment that the Gates Foundation took any steps to discipline PATH for the research it carried out in India. I think to some extent, the Gates Foundation thinks PATH has done nothing wrong, and that is a concern. One needs to get a spotlight on the Gates Foundation. The case is now before the country's Supreme Court. CDC cited Merck's and Gates's cheery assessments of the grotesque Indian experiments to help justify its expanded recommendation for the Gardasil vaccine. Prior to COVID-19, Gardasil was the most dangerous vaccine ever licensed, accounting for some 22% of cumulative injuries from all adverse events reported to the U.S. Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, VAERS. During clinical trials, Merck was unable to show that Gardasil was effective against cervical cancers. Instead, the studies showed the vaccine actually increases cervical cancer by 46.3% in women exposed to HPV prior to vaccination, perhaps one-third of all women. According to Merck's clinical trial reports, 
The vaccine was associated with autoimmune diseases in one out of every 39 women. Since introduction of that vaccine in 2006, thousands of girls have reported debilitating autoimmune diseases and cancer rates have skyrocketed in young women. HPV Vaccines and Fertility Gates's strong patronage of HPV vaccines, Gardasil and Cervarix, deepened suspicions that he was weaponizing vaccination against human fertility. Merck's clinical trials showed strong signals for reproductive harm from Gardasil. People in the study suffered reproductive problems, including premature ovarian failure at 10 times background rates. Female fertility has dropped precipitously beginning in 2006 in the United States, coterminous with Gardasil uptake. Historical drops in fecundity have occurred in every nation with high Gardasil uptake. Hepatitis B The conspiracy by Gavi, WHO, and UNICEF to force India to mandate hepatitis B vaccines is yet another illustration of how, under Bill Gates's hegemony, vaccine industry profits trump public health. The WHO initially recommended hepatitis B vaccination only in countries with high incidence of hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC, the species of liver cancer that the vaccine promises to abolish. Since HCC is rare in India, the country did not qualify under WHO's initial criteria, which recommended the vaccine only in nations with significant HCC. WHO's policy meant the vaccine manufacturers would lose a market of 1.3 billion people. Notwithstanding such concerns about the high costs and meager benefits of the vaccine, Gates, through his surrogates at Gavi, PATH, and WHO, successfully arm-twisted the Indian government in 2007 and 2008 into introducing the hepatitis B vaccines. Gavi pushed WHO to change the official policy to a universal recommendation, meaning that even countries with low disease burdens would be required to vaccinate. Gavi hoped this would reopen the Indian markets. WHO obligingly changed its recommendation to include universal immunization with hepatitis B vaccine for all countries, even those where HCC was not a problem. The Indian government obediently adopted WHO's recommendation. Indian academics and public health officials condemned the government's hepatitis B mandates, citing India's extremely low burden from HCC. The Indian Cancer Registry, ICMR, shows the incidence of hepatocellular carcinoma due to hepatitis B infection is only 5,000 cases a year. Independent scientists and Indian physicians argued against immunizing 25 million babies each year to theoretically prevent 5,000 cases of HCC. Anti-cancer vaccines are poor performers, 
and there is not even meager proof that the vaccine can prevent any cancers. Dr. Jacob M. Pouliel, M.D., chair of the Department of Pediatrics, St. Stephen's Hospital, Delhi, told me that, even if the vaccine were 100% effective, the need to administer 15,000 vaccines to infants to prevent a single death from HCC that might occur decades later intuitively seems an uneconomic way to spend scarce health resources. In a July 17, 1999 commentary published in BMJ, Dr. Pulliel observed that the cheapest Indian hepatitis B vaccine costs 360 rupees, or $5 for three doses. Dr. Pulliel points out that a third of India's population earns less than 57 rupees per capita per month. The main causes of death in India are diarrhea, respiratory infections, and malnutrition, Pulliel says. Should immunization against hepatitis B take priority over provision of clean drinking water? The study of Gates's forced introduction of hepatitis B vaccines in India showed that the vaccine did not reduce hepatitis B. The frequency of chronic carriers, HBSAG positivity, was similar in the unvaccinated as in the vaccinated. The study further suggested that maternal immunity was protecting newborn babies from infection at the time when they are most vulnerable to develop chronic carrier status and HCC, and that the vaccine program reduces this natural immunity. Paradoxically, therefore, there is a substantial likelihood that Gates's vaccine is increasing the incidence of HCC in the country. These findings demonstrated the absurd futility of hepatitis B vaccination in India. No matter, says Pouliel, Gates's opinion was the only thing that counted. WHO stood firm, taking the position that all countries must include hepatitis B vaccine in their immunization program, even if the vaccine was unnecessary. Haemophilus influenzae B, Hib WHO followed its hepatitis B debacle with a much weaker recommendation for vaccination against Haemophilus influenzae type B, Hib. WHO recommended Hib vaccines only in nations suffering a grave disease burden. In an editorial in the Bulletin of the WHO, Indian doctors questioned the need for Hib vaccine in Asia, where the incidence of invasive Hib disease was extremely low, Lao 1999. In 2002, Dr. Thomas Chirion, who is now the WHO coordinator of EPI, wrote that based on the available data, Hib vaccine should not be recommended for routine use in India. To overcome such meddling from India's prying medical community, in 2005, Gates funded through Gavi a four-year, $37 million study of mass vaccination with Hib jabs in Bangladesh, intending to showcase the vaccine's benefits. Gavi's Bangladesh study backfired, showing no advantage from Hib vaccination. In response, a formidable coterie of superstar international health experts 
all of them coincidentally from Gates-funded organizations WHO, Gavi, UNICEF, USAID, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and CDC, issued a deceitful proclamation that fraudulently claimed that the Bangladesh study proved a hib jab protects children from significant burden of life-threatening pneumonia and meningitis. Prominent Indian doctors responded with outraged commentaries in the British Medical Journal and the Indian Journal of Medical Research, describing the Gates-funded study as a devious artifice. Based on Gates's orchestrated guile, WHO in 2006 took the official position that the Hib vaccine should be included in all routine immunization programs. Once again, the Indian government caved into Gates and mandated Hib vaccines in India, where Hib invasive disease was nearly non-existent. In self-congratulatory articles, Gavi boasted triumphantly of its role in rescuing the Hib vaccine project in India after the Bangladesh study proved the vaccine a worthless waste of money, Gavi 2007, Levine et al. 2010. Gavi's article notes that, since there was little burden from Hib disease in India, it had been a great challenge to gin up support for WHO's recommendation. Gavi bragged, in technocratic argot, that it twisted WHO's arm to revise WHO's Hib vaccine policy from a weak permissive statement to a firm recommendation calling for universal vaccine introduction in all countries. WHO's Volt Foss dragooned reticent Indian health officials to recommend the useless vaccine. Dr. Puliel complains that incident highlights the influence Gavi and other vaccine manufacturer-funded organizations like the HIB initiative have on the WHO and how it impacts vaccine uptake internationally. Puliel protests that the Gates Foundation has privatized and monetized international public health policy, transforming WHO recommendations into effective mandates and compelling poor countries to pay annual tribute to foreign pharma overlords. Puliel told me that India and other Asian nations are now effectively compelled to administer the vaccine and to increase Hib uptake targets, irrespective of an individual country's disease burden, notwithstanding of natural immunity attained within the country against the disease, and not taking into account the rights of sovereign states to decide how they use their limited resources. He adds that the mandate and wisdom of issuing such a directive for a disease that has little potential of becoming a pandemic needs to be questioned. Dr. Puliel's commentary in the BMJ denounced Gates and Gavi for pushing Hib vaccine in developing countries and for falsifying the characterization of the research data in their press release. The directive has come after a number of failed attempts to convince the scientific community of the need for this vaccine in Asia. Puliel described the Hib saga as a case study on the visible and invisible pressures brought to bear 
on governments to deploy expensive new vaccines. Pentavalent Vaccine Despite Gates's victory in winning recommendations for Hib and Hepatitis B in Asia, actual uptake rates disappointed the pharma Mikados. Defying the WHO and Indian Health Ministry recommendations, local physicians stonewalled the jab. Most Indians had never heard of either illness. Dr. Puliel told me Indian doctors were not impressed by the need for either Hib or Hepatitis B jabs and seldom recommended them to patients. Physician resistance stymied Indian health officials from meeting WHO's uptake metrics for the newly recommended shots. To overcome this problem, pharma introduced a diabolically cunning strategy to euthanize three birds with one stone. The companies withdrew their flagging Hib and Hepatitis B vaccines and reissued a new concoction that combined those immunizations with the DTP, which, despite its popularity, had become another sandbag on Big Pharma's profit ambitions. By 2008, Pfizer's DTP patent was long expired, and there were 63 manufacturers making the vaccine in 42 countries with large surpluses and very low margins. The Gates cabal solved these profiteering problems by brewing up a new five diseases vaccine by mixing the DTP, Hib, and Hepatitis B formulas in a single syringe. That new combination became a new vaccine. The Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, Gavi, and WHO christened the novel, untested, and unlicensed concoction the pentavalent vaccine and recommended its use in developing countries to replace the DTP vaccine. Compliant Indian health ministries then phased out the DTP, which had been popular with doctors. Now, if any physician or individual wanted DTP, their only choice would be the pentavalent vaccine. On its website, Gavi admitted that its underlying reason for this caper was to increase the uptake of the hepatitis B and Hib vaccines in these countries by piggybacking on the well-accepted DTP vaccine. It was an ingenious money-making connivance. Competition had driven down the cost of the DTP to 15.50 rupees, about 14 cents U.S. The hepatitis B vaccine retailed for 45 rupees and the Hib for 25. Therefore, the combined cost of all three vaccines, if purchased separately, was 185 rupees. However, the new pentavalent vaccine, made by Gates's friend Cyrus Punawala, owner of the Serum Institute of India, costs 550 rupees, a 1,440% increase in profits for every vaccine sold. The Food and Drug Administration, FDA, has not licensed the combination vaccine for either safety or efficacy, and developed countries do not use it. A Cochrane meta-analysis showed that the combination is less effective than the vaccines given separately. Furthermore, the pentavalent vaccine 
is life-threatening to infants. Before its Indian debut, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and Vietnam previewed the pentavalent jab. In each of these countries, unexplained deaths followed immunization. Bhutan suspended the immunization program in October 2009 after five cases of encephalopathy encephalitis occurred following the vaccine. WHO persuaded health officials to resume the program, insisting that viral meningoencephalitis caused the deaths. Bhutan obeyed, and four infants died. Bhutan no longer uses the pentavalent vaccine. The director of public health, Dr. Ugen Dofu, observes that there have been no more cases of meningoencephalitis among infants after the vaccine was withdrawn. Sri Lanka unleashed the pentavalent vaccine in January 2008 and then suspended the program four months later after five babies died. Under pressure from WHO, Sri Lanka reintroduced the vaccine in 2010. Between 2010 and 2012, there were 14 additional deaths following the vaccine, making the total number of deaths in Sri Lanka 19. Vietnam introduced the pentavalent jab in June 2010 and suspended the jab in May 2013 after 27 infant deaths. The experience in Pakistan was similar, including at least three reported deaths. India introduced pentavalent vaccine in December 2011. Up to the first quarter of 2013, health officials reported 83 serious adverse events following immunization, AEFI. 21 babies have died in India following immunization with the pentavalent vaccine. Gates and WHO simply trivialized the deaths as sad coincidences or collateral damage. The vaccine has effectively reduced the incidence of Hib disease in India. However, there has been a proportionate increase in non-Hib strains of H. influenzae, including non-serotypable strains, causing invasive disease in the post-Hib vaccine era. As usual, there was no accounting. This is only one of many examples of the Gates Foundation prioritizing the mandate for high-cost vaccines in the national immunization programs that Bill Gates effectively controls. Putting aside questions about net costs and benefits from these dangerous jabs, Magoey agrees with Pouliel that the diversion of sanitation and nutrition money is also deadly. The problem is that by prioritizing the delivery of expensive vaccines, other proven interventions lose out. Real-world evidence, including his investments in pharmaceutical, petroleum, chemical, and GMO processed and synthetic food, suggests that Gates's obsession with vaccines does not evince any genuine commitment to healthy populations. According to Amy Goodman, Gates owns investments in 69 of the world's worst polluting companies. His single-minded obsession with vaccines seems to serve his impulse to monetize his charity and to achieve monopoly control over global public health policy.
his strategies and corporate alliances in the food, public health, and education sectors may also reflect messianic conviction that he is ordained to save the world with technology, top-down centralized cookie-cutter solutions to complex human problems, and a godlike willingness to experiment with the lives of lesser humans. And Gates's vaccine cartel has amassed Midas-like riches. Early in 2021, a TV interviewer, Becky Quick, observed that Gates had spent $10 billion on vaccines over the past two decades and asked Gates, You've figured out the return on investment for that, and it kind of stunned me. Can you walk us through the math? Gates responded, We see a phenomenal track record. There's been over a 20 to 1 return. So if you just looked at the economic benefits, that's a pretty strong number. The interviewer pressed him. If you had put that money into an S&P 500 and reinvested the dividends, you'd come up with something like $17 billion. But you think it's $200 billion. Gates continued, Here, yeah. Hastening to add that helping young children live, get the right nutrition, contribute to their countries, that has a payback that goes beyond any typical financial return. The key to it all, he added, is having that big portfolio. And the key to much of that portfolio is having Anthony Fauci. Please go to the Children's Health Defense website for the acknowledgments and notes by chapter, updates to data, and new information that becomes available on any of the subject matter covered in this audiobook.